0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Jessica Walsh about her quick ascent in the world of design, which may have had at least something to do with that naked promotional photo she took with her new business partner, Stefan Sagmeister.
1: Stefan came to me and suggested that I would be dressed conservatively and that he would still be naked. I just looked at him and said why would I be dressed conservatively? I want to be naked
0: too. Here's Debbie Millman. Just a few years ago when Jessica Walsh was a senior at the Rhode Island School of Design she had to decide between a job at Apple and an internship at Pentagram in New York City. She chose New York and it appears to have been the right choice. In the few short years since then Jessica has won a shelf full of honors and awards held some high-profile jobs, and was named one of the art director club's Young Guns. And last year, at age 25, Jessica became partners with Stefan Sagmeister. In addition to her work at Sagmeister and Walsh, Jessica was recently named a faculty member here at the School of Visual Arts. Jessica Walsh, welcome to Design Matters.
1: Thank you, Debbie.
0: So, Jessica, is it true... That when you were five years old, you and your sister created a business called Magic Rock Moss, wherein you hot glued moss on the top of rocks, wrapped them in cellophane, created labels, and then sold them to your classmates for their lunch money. That is very true. (laughs) (laughs) So what is so magical about the Magic Rock Moss? What did it do? What was so special about it? Um, we convinced
1: people that they would give them magic powers.
0: What kind of powers?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, get all good grades in school and <laughs> get your parents to give you more money for clothes.
0: <laughs> now, is your sister older or younger? She's two years younger. So you were really the ringleader here.
1: Actually, she was kind of always the older sister growing up. Oh, really?
0: Yeah, she was actually
1: the ringleader in that one. I was doing more of the packaging design.
0: Oh, okay. So you grew up in Connecticut, and what I understand was a very entrepreneurial household. What do your parents do?
1: My parents started a company which created software for medical doctors in the 80s. So growing up, it was a very entrepreneurial environment. It was all about work. They absolutely loved their job. Um, So yeah, I think that had a a pretty big influence on me.
0: I read that you taught yourself how to code Mm -hmm. at 11 years old. Now, how do you go about teaching yourself code? Did you read a How to Code for Dummies book or something of that sort?
1: It was a lot of trial and error. Um, I just started reading HTML help websites and then just starting to look at code on various websites that I liked, like viewing the source code.
0: um, What made you decide to even want to do that? What was the motivation?
1: It's actually (laughs) kind of a funny story. So there was a website around called Neopets, it's a basically like a digital version of a Tamagotchi pet, and uh, at, when I was ten or eleven, this was this was the thing to do. I was I was really into it, and I was always kind of a perfectionist. And one aspect of the website was that you could create a um, homepage for your pet, and I became obsessed with making my pet. The best web page ever. Um, so that's kind of what started me on my mission to learning HTML and CSS, um, all to make the pet a great website. <laughs> so,
0: and, and was it the best? Was there like a contest? At Did you?
1: T- at the time, I thought it was the best website ever.
0: <laughs> Looking
1: back, it was like flashing stars and hearts and all sorts of really cheesy bad design.
0: <laughs> Is there any place where this still might exist?
1: <laughs> it. It does not. I tried. I tried to look through all my old files. It'd be great if I could find it.
0: (laughs) So this is when you first started creating graphics for websites. And at that Mm -hmm. time, you became involved in the blogging world and created an HTML and CSS tutorial site that also offered free website templates. What made you decide to do that?
1: Well, about a year into making my own websites and blogs, I started getting a lot of other kids reaching out to me to help them create websites um, so that, I was helping individuals create websites for about a year. And then about a year into that, I got the idea to make a website that taught other kids in a really easy to understand way how to make websites for themselves. Um, and I also had a section of that website which offered pre-made templates.
0: And it became wildly popular. I understand yeah, there were it was about totally, 15,000 people visiting a day.
1: Yeah. I mean, around that time, Google Ads had just launched. So I basically had a curiosity. I tried putting one of the ads on my website, and I started making a lot of money from it. And, um, and you were 11. Was, yeah. You were 11. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> so what kind of real money were you making from Google, if you don't mind me asking?
1: Um, a couple thousand dollars a month, which to an wow. 11-year-old was a lot. And it started to get increasing over time. Um, that was just in the beginning. So, yeah, it was a big turning point for me because I was – amazing to be getting paid to do what I consider a hobby and fun and my play, essentially. So um, that's kind of what I've been aiming to do with my life ever since.
0: (laughs) So at 11 years old, what did your parents think of you getting a check from Google for several thousand dollars month after month?
1: Well, for a while, my mom was very concerned about me. You know, I would lock myself in my room for like two or three days with just my computer coding. Um, like would forget to eat or shower. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like a geek. You're a real a geek deep geek. down. Yeah. Um, so when I started getting those checks, she started to feel a little relieved. Like, okay, this, this could be potentially going somewhere. Um. And so is this what
0: ultimately determined your interest to become a designer? Had you ever thought about doing anything else?
1: I thought I would go to business school, like my parents, and follow down their path. So this was actually a turning point for me and for them because they saw that I could make money doing this kind of thing. And that's when I decided to apply to some art schools for college.
0: And so what made you decide to choose Rhode Island School of Design?
1: Uh, well, a lot of the other schools that I applied to were liberal arts schools. I wasn't sure if I wanted to focus more on the coding or design side. And of course, you know, my parents and advisors were all pushing me to go to a liberal arts school, keep my options open. But I don't know, something in my gut was just telling me that art school was the way to go. And RISD just felt right when I was at the campus. So I just took a leap of faith and went there.
0: And have you been still working on your coding skills?
1: I have not. (laughs) I cannot code at all anymore. No, it's not like riding a bicycle? (laughs) No. Okay.
0: So when you went to RISD, I actually um, read that you were really shocked because suddenly you were working with your hands for the first time Mm-hmm. after working on a screen and in, in a keyboard for 24-7. So what was that experience like? What were you doing with your hands?
1: Well, RISC is unique in that in the first year, you don't get to go into your major. So you're, you're put into a foundation year where you're doing all sorts of fine arts classes from drawing, painting, woodworking, um, model making. And at first I hated it, but I ended up loving uh, experimenting with all these materials and and expressing creativity in this very different way.
0: Now, when you applied to RISD, did you have to show them a portfolio of flat work?
1: I did, and it was terrible. My drawing skills were horrible.
0: (laughs) But your your computer skills were so mad, they just had to take you, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. So after you graduated in 2008, you were in the enviable position of having to decide between two jobs— A high-paying job at Apple in Cupertino, that tiny little computer company on the West Coast, or a modestly paid internship with a small design firm called Pentagram. What kind of job was it at Apple? Doing what exactly?
1: It would have been on their their web team, um, so doing digital design work.
0: And so you decided you'd rather make much less money Live in New York City and work as an intern at Pentagram rather than this high paying job at Apple working for Steve Jobs.
1: Yes. <laughs> Not <to> get- <laughs> that that's a
0: judgment in any way. You know, I love Pentagram. I'm just curious as to how you made that decision.
1: Again, it was very much a gut instinct thing. You know, I loved Apple. I interned there and it was great team people. I'm sure I would have been very happy, but, you know, something inside me was telling me that New York was calling and that I would be much happier in a studio environment, I do tend to be a little bit restless and I like to do lots of different things. So I thought that, um, you know, coming here and trying out a studio would be a bigger challenge.
0: How did you go about getting the internship at Pentagram?
1: I just applied, um, you know, info at Pentagram (laughs) and um, went on interviews. I'd always very much admired Paula's work. Um, And her being a very strong female character in the design scene. So um, I interviewed with their team and got the internship position there.
0: I read an article about showing your first portfolio to Paula Share, who liked it very much, but then also recommended that you remove some of the projects that you had in it. Mm -hmm. Then when you showed it to Christina Di Matteo, the great designer who was then the art director at Print Magazine, Christina loved some of the work that Paula hated and didn't like some of the work that Paula did like. And you stated that you learned very quickly that everyone has different design aesthetics and your portfolio should be a representation of yourself and the kind of work you want to be doing. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate on this a little bit for our listeners.
1: Sure. I mean – Everyone you ask if you show your portfolio to different people are going to have a different opinion on it. So I think that really you have to find what is your voice, what is the kind of work that you want to be doing. Um, Because when you have that kind of work in your portfolio, that's going to kind of influence the types of places that are going to hire you and the kind of work that you're going to be getting. So you want it to be a representation of yourself and what you want to be doing in the future.
0: Whenever I talk to students and I look at their portfolio, I always recommend that they ask people not so much what they like, but what they don't like. So, if there was one thing that you you think I should take out of this portfolio, what would it be? Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily have to do it, but if ten people tell you the same thing, you might want to consider it. That's true. I, I also have issues with people that put things into their portfolio because. They think that if they show a book cover, it'll mean that they can do book covers. But if the book cover isn't very good, you're not going to get a job doing book covers. Right? How did you decide when you were first putting your portfolio together what kinds of projects to put in? Because clearly if 2 by 4 wanted you and Pentagram wanted you and Apple wanted you, the portfolio needed to be pretty strong.
1: It was just the work that i felt was best and that I I liked best out of of what I had done at the time.
0: Did you do any self-generated work, your own assignments?
1: I had been doing a lot of freelance work on the side while I was at RISD. So there was a lot of that. And then there was a lot of student work. I I was a a little bit of an overachiever. I did two thesis projects. Oh, really? (laughs) Um, So I just had a lot of those types of things.
0: So what was the biggest thing you learned at Pentagram?
1: I guess just speaking up for what you want. You know, I'd been interning there for several months and um, felt like I I wanted more and just said to Paula that I either needed to be hired here or I was going to have to leave. And she helped me get the position at print. Um, So, yeah, just that's been something that ever since has stuck with me. Um, Now, if I I feel like I need something or want something, I just ask for
0: it and it usually pays off. (laughs) I'm not sure if I first saw you when you were first interviewing at Print Magazine or if you were coming to your first day of work there. Mm-hmm. But I saw you at the print offices just as you were either about oh, to really? be hired or starting. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I was there uh, visiting the editor at the time, Emily Gordon, and she pointed you out to me and she told me to watch you, that you were the real deal and were headed for the big time. Oh. Um, What was it like to become the associate art director of one of the most important design magazines in the world at that time in your life?
1: It was very exciting. I mean, I was very young, (laughs) Um, had only had the internship and a little bit of freelance experience. So I was kind of thrown right in. But I absolutely loved it. I loved getting to do such a variety of work. It wasn't just doing editorial design. Um, You know, when you work at print, it's a small team of three or four people putting the entire magazine together. I know, people think it's like oodles (laughs) and oodles of of staff. You know, it's like
0: two people. (laughs) Right. And they're doing everything online also.
1: Yeah. So I absolutely loved that variety of getting to do some web things, getting to work on their social media, doing the editorial design, um, doing a photo shoot the next day, uh, getting to illustrate covers. So it was such a great experience for me and really helped me develop my own personal style as well.
0: It's hard to describe some of your best covers at print. I sort of had them, was looking at them all um, over the last week. And the best that I can do is call them photographic sculptures. (laughs) That's the only term that (laughs) I could come up with. So do you have a favorite cover or do you have a, a sense of what provoked you to do these sort of magical kind of biomorphic acrobatics. (laughs) acrobatics. <laughs>
1: I think my favorite cover was the CMYK champagne. Uh, I had a feeling <laughs> you were going to say
0: that. I still didn't know how you did that. I, I look at it over and over. And for our listeners that might not be aware, it's sort of these glasses coming together and paint flying. And it's almost like it was a an actual sculpture of flying paint that you made because right. it seems completely still. Right. How did you do it? Basically, as it looks,
1: we had four models, hand models. So did you make the molds of paint? No, it was real paint. It was really inside real Inside champagne paint. glasses. Oh, my God. And it didn't work for the first 20 <laughs> tries or so. So did you have to
0: keep <laughs> cleaning the cups or did you have a whole
1: we had, box full? We had went to Ikea and bought one of those jumbo size boxes full of champagne glasses and, um, it's lucky we had a lot of extra on hand because it's a mistake to ever buy photo shoot props at IKEA. They <laughs> are not, not the most durable. <laughs> so every time we,
0: we tried, there was smashed glass broken everywhere. Oh um, my God. <laughs> Cause I was thinking about all the food projects that I've worked on and, you know, creating molds of milk that looks like it's being poured or ice cream that's made out of potatoes or whatever. And I couldn't imagine (laughs) that that wasn't a mold, but didn't know how you managed to do it.
1: Yeah, it was just, you know, enough trial and error, taking tons of different photographs and hoping for the
0: right one. Absolutely exquisite. So in February of 2010, you began working at Sagmeister, Inc., uh, Stefan Sagmeister famously has a three-year waiting list for internships, and Stefan did not hire new designers very often. In fact, just you know, every every number of years, somebody new would come on. How did you even hear about an opportunity at Sagmeister? I didn't
1: actually. Um, I mean, Stefan was always one of my f- favorite designers, and after print, I was pretty seriously considering going freelance. Just on my own because I was getting a lot of uh, my own editorial commissions and offers, and I knew I could support myself. Um, but I, I thought to myself, "Is there anyone that I could, at this point, really learn from um, and want to work for um, before going on my own?" And it would it would. Be- only be Stefan, so I just really... overachiever that you are. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I I didn't think that I knew that, that he rarely or never hired, so it, I had never applied to him in the past. Um, so I just decided to reach out to him not as a, for, for a job, but just to meet up to get his advice for myself moving forward and to look over my book and hear hear what his thoughts were. Um, and he was in the middle of a big interview when I went to go meet him. But he luckily took five or ten minutes out of the interview to look through my book. And he was flipping through it pretty quickly and asked when I could come out and try working for him. So um, I had quit my job the next day at Print Magazine and took the leap of faith and
0: started working with him. Now, you say this as if it was just effortless and um, having many, 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 many students that have reached out to very well-known designers Stefan included mm-hmm. it's not always the speed um in which you've described as the norm I mean this seems like you wrote him he wrote back and boom you were working I mean was it was it over a period of months was it instant was there something that you did that instantly captured his attention is there or is it just in the stars
1: no I mean I I am extremely grateful that I think I've been very lucky in that regard, in that it, you know, both in applying to um, Pentagram Print and to him, it was pretty effortless. I just emailed and pretty much straight away got interviews. But I, I recognize how much, um, you know, luck and being in the right place at the right time is involved in that Um well, and and the quality of one's work as sure, well. Sure,
0: sure. I mean, I always, um, advise my students not to, uh, put all of their eggs in one basket and right. only write to Stefan Sagmeister in Looking for Employment. Right. Um, but yet w- one of my students last year, Santiago Carasquilla, yes. he decided to um, do it anyway. And, and there he is working alongside you. So, now, from February 2010 to June of 2012, you were a designer and an art director for Sagmeister. Mm-hmm. And I believe you also took care of the studio when Stefan went on his second sabbatical. So what was that like? You get you get the job, you get hired, and then, see ya, I'm going off to Bali, making well, I, a movie and some furniture. <laughs>
1: I had been uh, working there for a year or so um, before he left, and he had only left for, a, it was a four-month period. It wasn't one of his one-year sabbaticals. Um, and already at that point, I had kind of shown him that I could manage the studio, that I could handle the big client work, run the interns and other designers at the time, um, and manage the financial side. So I think he felt comfortable enough leaving me for those four months. I mean, it was a risk on his part, um, but it was a great experience for me.
0: Was there any time where you were worried that you were making the wrong decisions? How did you know when you felt like you were making the right decisions? Where did you find your confidence at that time?
1: Just it was all gut instinct. Really? Yeah. You have a good gut, Jessica. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. So in June of 2012, after 19 years on his own, you were named Sagmeister's first ever partner, and the name of the company was changed to Sagmeister and Walsh. Tell us about becoming a partner. Were you surprised by the offer or did you ask for it? Did you demand it? Was, <laughs> it, was, it, was it just a gift? Tell, tell us about it.
1: Um, so I had been working there about two and a half years, and Stefan and I have always had a pretty open communication. And he knew that I had always wanted to run my own studio, and that I really wanted to be managing the client side of a business. So we basically started a series of conversations about how we could both continue working together in a way that would work for both of us. Um, he very much wanted to focus much more on his film and his experimental design work. So the idea behind the partnership was that I could run more of the client side of things and that he could have a little bit alleviated off him and and focus more on his film.
0: It's really interesting. When I interviewed Stefan in 2007 for one of my books, he talked about his future and he was looking at the arc of his career and talking about how when he was younger, he thought a lot about being a filmmaker and even then considered what it would take, but realized that it would probably take him about 10 years to get to any type of real expertise as a filmmaker. And so he didn't think it was going to be possible given where he was in his design business. So it's so interesting to see how people evolve and, who they evolve with, and what it takes to take that next step. Right. Talk about how you manage your clients while he's doing his the personal work, because I do believe you're also collaborating on some of his personal work, and he's also collaborating on some of the client work. How do, how do you manage going back and forth like that?
1: It's just organic, project by project. Um, what seems to make sense, who has the good ideas, you know, how involved I am with Whatever projects are going on at the time, he might step in if we have a new client come in and help out more with the client side of things. Um, and then vice versa. If he has a ton going on with his film and he needs me to art direct and design a short typographic piece for something he's doing, I'll push aside the client things for a week or two and help him out in that area.
0: Do you ever disagree? Yes, Tell us more. (laughs) But I think we
1: both respect each other's opinions so much and we're both very flexible people, which I think is really important in any um, design partnership. So if he really strongly believes in something, I am pretty flexible to to do what he thinks is right and the same vice versa. If he sees that I really, really believe in something and really want to do something for a project, he'll go
0: for it. Having had partners now for many, many years in my consulting practice, I know that there are certain things that I do that will raise a red flag or somebody will disagree with a particular direction that I like because of whatever reason. Are there certain things that you know that if you do them, Stefan is going to be like, what are you doing, Jessica? Or do you do the same with him?
1: Uh, Yes, but I think we just know at this point what those things are, and (laughs) we just avoid doing them, so we don't run into doing it.
0: (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about the promotion that you did for your announcement. You knew it was coming. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) When Stefan first launched Sagmeister way back in the day, he designed a promotional postcard wearing dress socks and nothing else. Um, In other words, he was naked, nude. You saw all of the genitalia. Um, The card was a cheeky bit of irony, suggesting that it took big balls to open your own solo shop. And last May, when Sagmeister Inc. became Sagmeister and Walsh, you both posed completely naked for the email announcement. What made you decide to do that?
1: Basically, Stefan came to me and showed me the postcard that he had originally done and said that he thought it might be interesting to do some sort of remake of this, but he suggested that uh, I would be dressed conservatively and that he would still be naked. And I just looked at him and said, why Why would I be dressed conservatively? I want to be naked too. Um, I knew, I just felt like it would be much more impactful that way. So we just did it.
0: Were you nervous? Were you shy? A little
1: bit at first, um, mainly because we also had a lot of uh camera film crew had you ever seen him like
0: stark naked in person before wasn't it no odd no not really not really (laughs) (laughs) but within like a few minutes i don't even like to get naked when i'm going into the shower i can't even imagine doing this
1: (laughs) i mean i'm pretty comfortable with it because i do a lot of art direction for um fashion photography for one of our clients and there's a lot of nudity on set and i'm also really big into sauna culture so I'm I'm not really uncomfortable being naked. Um it was a little bit weird for the first 2 minutes knowing that I was being filmed um for the happy film but I got pretty comfortable pretty quickly and it was actually quite liberating. Really? <laughs> by the end of it, we were like, what
0: else can we do naked on the film? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's hear about that too. No, I did know. not go anywhere. <laughs> um, so do you think there's like nude beaches in your future? Oh, I've been to nude beaches before. Oh, okay, so you're really comfortable with this. Yeah, yeah. Were you surprised by the reaction and the sort of ensuing brouhaha?
1: No, I'm not naive. I knew that people were going to make those kinds of assumptions and say those sorts of things.
0: Was there any airbrushing involved?
1: There was not, except for a vein on Stefan's left
0: leg, which he wanted removed. Why? Suddenly vanity appears? (laughs) (laughs) A vein on his left leg? I need to see this vein. Um, Okay, so if nakedness, if this nakedness isn't enough, you and Stefan recently launched a new website for Sagmeister and Walsh. And an entirely new identity system. And you once again posed naked. Um, This time you were joined by your interns and staff and one of my students, Santiago, who I will never be able to look in the eye again, um, which though quite gorgeous, was uncomfortable for me to see as his teacher. Um, What made you decide to do – the nudity again. I mean, you already had had the brouhaha. You couldn't have imagined that you wouldn't get more brouhaha. You were the only woman among these five gorgeous men or four, four or five. Uh, five. Five gorgeous men. Um, so so what made you decide to do that?
1: You know, it's Stefan has done nudity before. It's a cheap trick. It continues to
0: work. And now, what, does, think, what do you mean it continues to work? In what way does it work?
1: Well, we're using it to get a message out, the point of the, the mailer, the promotional mailer announcing the partnership was that we wanted as many people as possible to know about our new partnership. And so in that way, the piece was a very functional piece of design. Within minutes of sending it out, it was being retweeted, blogged. Thousands of people were seeing it, um, getting hundreds of emails. So um, it, it worked for what we were trying to do. And when we launched our new website we just went back to the same cheap trick.
0: <laughs> I read that there were more than 700 new visitors per second mm-hmm. um, from, at your website when you launched the new identity. Now, you said that it was a cheap trick. Do you really feel like it was a cheap trick? Or do you feel like it was a smart trick? Or do you feel like it was, I mean, what, what, do you, what is, what's your thoughts about well, the, the the nature of it?
1: Well, it's cheap in that it's it's not expensive <laughs> to do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, the, literally, it's literally cheap, literally and figuratively cheap. Yes, yes. Um,
1: but of course, we you know we understand that it's provocative. It gets people talking. That it will create some controversy. People, some people will love it, some people will hate it, but they're going to talk about
0: it. So, so, so I, I want to read you uh, a piece from Print Magazine, your alma mater. Um, Michael Silverberg, the then-editor, wrote a sort of op-ed of sorts Mm -hmm. on the print site, and he titled it, Some Uncomfortable Thoughts About Sagmeister and Walsh's New Identity. And I'd like to read uh, a section from the post. At one point, their site was getting more than 700 new visitors per second. It is the identity, though, stationery, pencils, business cards, CDs, and condoms, that has drawn the most reaction. The CDs use the visual language of pictograms to tell a crude story of debasement. A woman performs oral sex on a man and, still kneeling, vomits into a toilet. The pencils purport to show the average lengths of African-American, Caucasian, and Asian penises in descending order. Printed on the reverse alongside Sackmeister and Walsh are the words Source, British Medical Journal, giving a well-worn stereotype the cover of scientific credibility. It's hard to see the pencils as anything other than racism repackaged as edginess or edginess rebranded as racism. But the pictograms are open to a more generous interpretation. Could Walsh be forcing the anonymous leches to confront the ugliness of their innuendos? Is she asserting her right to take risks with her body and control of her career however she sees fit? As Christopher King, the art director of Melville House, wrote on the Brooklyn-based publisher's blog... Amid the wave of predictable publicity, we're left to wonder, is it an elaborate act of irony or is it just an empty provocation? And I thought, what better time than to just ask you directly?
1: I think it was a mix of both. (laughs) Part of it was that, you know, there was some ridiculous things being said after the promotional mailer went out, basically saying that, I slept with Stefan to get
0: that position. That was offensive. That was offensive, as (laughs) Um, if that's all it took, right?
1: Or that I was pregnant. I mean, the comments went on and on. So in a way, it was kind of prodding people from that. But also, we approached the whole thing with a lot of humor. We thought a lot of these things would just be funny. And a lot of people did find them funny. (laughs) I knew that it was going to offend a lot of people and that people would say these sorts of things. We are definitely not racist <laughs> um, or, I or sexist. I know. But, you know, people are going to say all sorts of things and people are going to have their opinions. But i rather do work that half the people love and half the people hate than do work that, you know, everyone just finds okay.
0: <laughs> Did it bother you? Did you? Were you upset about the reaction? No.
1: I was very prepared and well aware that people were going to react that way.
0: I remember when Sharon Stone posed for Playboy. Everybody was up in arms about it. And she retorted that in 20 or 30 years, she wanted to be able to look back at her body and be proud of how she looked. She had no issue with it, as Madonna, who famously said, deal with it when naked photos of her were unearthed at the beginning of her career. How do you imagine you look back on all of this?
1: I do not think I will regret it. Um, It worked for what we wanted it to work for, and I think it was an experience, a liberating one, and I had have had fun and a sense of humor with it all. Um, yeah, I'm not one to look back and and have regrets, so I think I'll I'll probably just smile and laugh when I was young.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you and Stefan just had an exhibit at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Philadelphia titled Mm -hmm. The Happy Show. And you also have a current show at the Jewish Museum in New York City. How would you describe these shows for our listeners that might not be aware of them or have seen them?
1: Well, The Happy Show in the Contemporary Art of Philadelphia, that started off mostly from Stefan's film. So it's kind of like a, a narrative experience That is based on his own happiness and these um, experiments that he's doing to see if he can train his mind in the same way that he can train his body. Um, So he's tried out different things, such as uh, going to cognitive therapy, taking psychopharmacological drugs, and going to meditation retreats in Bali. So all these things that leading scientists say will improve your well-being, he has tried them out and. We've been filming them, and based on them, making a lot of different typographic experiments and statements kind of in line with Stefan's things I've learned in my life series. and all of this kind of was shown at the at the museum there as kind of a precursor to the film.
0: Have you learned anything new about happiness? <laughs>
1: Exercise has a great effect on my That's happiness. What I hear. Oh, for
0: yours personally? Yes. What kind of exercise do you like to do?
1: Actually, just a month ago, I started running and uh, doing yoga, and it's unbelievably
0: <laughs> helpful. I understand that scientists believe that humans essentially have a set point for their happiness, and it takes quite a lot to really move that. Any movement initially just tends to be something that is temporary and that you go back to your set point. Have you seen any fundamental differences in Stefan now that he's been doing all of these different experiments? Not really. No.
1: During certain ones, I would see a little bit of difference. By far, the biggest difference I saw was when he fell in love with his now fiancée, Vesa. He's engaged? He's engaged. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, That by far had the biggest effect on his happiness.
0: Now, I read that you've gotten a lot of emails from people telling you how the work in the show affected them or changed their lives. Mm -hmm. What are some of the stories you've heard? All sorts of things. Um, You know, people are writing us once a week
1: about how it's completely changed their life, that they want to go into a different career path that they always really wanted to go to now, um, that they are going to, you know, start trying out some of these things for themselves, that they're going to seek a therapist and they never had the guts to do it before. Um, and, th- you know, hearing those kinds of things, it's, it's really, really touching. Um, you know, I think it's instilled in both Stefan and I that we not only want to create good work, The best work we can do, but also work that really touches people somehow or moves them. So I think that's in the future what we want to do more of.
0: Jessica, I have one last question for you. Um, What's up with you and avocados? Is it true you? you eat one every day, an entire avocado, every day?
1: I do. There's been some points where I have eaten two or three in one wow,
0: day. You must love guacamole. I make the best guacamole. Ooh, okay.
1: <laughs> um, I it started when I was interning at Apple, um, you know? Now, if you had said you'd
0: started eating <laughs> apples, I would understand. But what about avocados? Avocados
1: is pretty big in,
0: in San Francisco. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so you just kept eating them. I love it, yeah. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on. Thank Design you, You can find out more about Jessica Walsh and see her work at sagmeisterwalsh.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.